coffee and a little bit of conversation. This episode of Conversations and Coffee podcast has been supplied with Fools and Horses Coffee, a drive-through horse box. A massive thank you to the guys over at Fools and Horses and Upside for supplying the coffee for today's episode. Let's get into it. We hope you enjoy. Hello everyone, welcome to Conversations and Coffee Podcast. Today I'm joined in the studio here with Donald Fallon. Donald, thank Good you to so be here. How are you? It's like thank an you. existential crisis where you have your own podcast and you're on someone else's podcast. And for, anyway. I'm glad you said that because I want to quickly jump into that. Um, you're brand new to the podcast game. You are about two episodes in and Three Castles Born is available on all platforms, iTunes and... Well, I'm very nervous now looking at your set up here, you know, it's like Montrose, like RTE in here. Oh, no, I mean, microphones. it looks good on the outside, but I mean, no, I have to say, um, I listened to your first episode, I'm yet to listen to the second one, but I linked that below for anybody that wants to head on over. I mean, you absolutely smashed it the first week, your reviews shot up and you went straight up on the charts, so... Um, we'll all be tuned into that tree well, castle. I have to say, I mean, it, it's uh, a whole new thing for me. You know, I've, I'm so used to the written word. Mm-hmm. I just noticed in recent years that audio is, is the thing now. And if you don't move with the times, they're going to move without you. Exactly. So yeah, it's yeah. been uh, it's been amazing. I mean, I've been listening to as many Irish podcasts as I can in recent times. And I loved your interview with, with Polly. Uh, Paul Alright, yeah, great I'm guy. a massive fan of... Or shall we say LD, Le- Little Dialect. LD50. Yeah. I'm a massive fan of uh, Little Dialect. He's a great guy. To me, I mean, he's one of the best creative people mm-hmm. working in Dublin today. Mm-hmm. And I thought he really came across great mm-hmm. uh, in that interview. But this is where it's at now. You and know? this is where it's at. But when people kind of see, oh, Three Castles Boring and he has his own podcast, but what is it about and what does he do? So without me introducing you, because I've done my research, I've looked you up and, and I've been, you know, I've been familiar with you for a couple of years now, mainly through yeah. our love for St. Pat's and, you know, Shed End Invincibles and being <laughs> to Richmond Park um, to Richmond Park attendees for years now. But we, we went to Sligo together on the bus on away trips and we were down the country in Longford and everything. But I didn't really know you had this. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm obsessed with the past. I think the, the past, past exactly. echoes very loudly uh, in the present. And no matter what you're into, whether you stand on Hill 16 or you go and watch Pats or the local you're drinking, as in the case of the, the episode I just did on Grogan's, mm-hmm. everything we do in our lives is shaped by the past. Mm-hmm. And often, you know, we follow a team because our, our dad followed them or our granddad followed them or we go to a pub because our family went there. So I'm very interested in, in you know, the way, the way people behave because of the past mm-hmm. and how they're shaped by the past. Mm-hmm. So for about 10 years now, I've been doing Come Here To Me which is like a, a social history uh, of Dublin. And I just think there's, there's a great love of telling stories in this town. I think actually one reason podcasts do quite well in Ireland is Irish people love to talk. Mm-hmm. And as a historian, if people like to talk, well, that's an open goal for us, you know. So for about 10 years, I've been trying to capture the stories uh, of the city. And the blog, come here to me, we've kind of we've released two books. Uh, but we're, yeah, 10 years in the game for a blog is a, is a long, long time. Mm-hmm. But I see myself and I see our, our, our project as trying to capture the stories of the streets. So that is what we are in the business of doing. Because I love that, because I watched um, an interview you done, I, th- I think it was on O'Connell Street, and it was at the Spire, and yourself and your... Um, Kira Murray, one of my co-authors. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. But the two of you had said something really funny, and it was like, basically the reason you got into this game was to uh, kind of extract that information from the the regular school books, that history mm. we've been taught, and then put it out on, on a, you know, on a more... Uh, social internet you know and an accessible way and, but you, you ended know, up going back into the books then and, and it was brilliant kind of like his, did, history is thought of as uh, people think of history as a very boring thing mm-hmm. a very a very dull thing and they don't see the relevance of it in their contemporary mm-hmm. lives so our whole mission statement if you will 
was to convince people of the, 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 the validity of history mm-hmm. in their lives today. And it could be as simple as walking down a street that we all know inside out and trying to bring to life you know, the stories of that street. So it's been, a, it's been a great project and people have really responded to it in a big, big way, mm-hmm. uh, which, is, which is great. I wouldn't have really got to have the conversation with you um, back in 2016. I would have kind of loved to, to hear your thoughts on how different Dublin is and different Ireland is since 1916. Yeah, well, know. for me, what was really, really great about the centenary was the way communities just ran with it, you know. And my big fear was that it would be a big government thing, a big top-down thing. But even walking in here to, the, to where we're recording at the moment, I passed like a mural by local mm-hmm. kids for the 1916 centenary. Mm-hmm. So ordinary, everyday, I hate everyday people, but you know that term, ordinary people, mm-hmm. just ran with the centenary and kind of took ownership uh, of it. And for me, if history is linked to one thing, it's linked very strongly to, to community. And even walking around Dublin today, you can see all the legacies of the 2016 uh, centenary. So it was a, it was a, it was a celebration of, of community. And I mean, that's what we're all about, really. That's clearly what, what your project is all about. 100%. And what my project is all about. That sense Nothing more, of community. exactly. Yeah, it's, it's just connecting with somebody and getting to hear their story because we're so quick to kind of see, oh, that's this guy and he does this. And oh, we make our judgment and our perception based on what we see. But then a quick 40 minute chat and people yeah. get to see, they're like, oh, well, that's what he does. But the game, like for in terms of a, a quick chat with people, the game for historians has changed in a big way in the sense that like, my podcast is done on a Zoom recorder, which is nowhere near the equipment you have here. Not yet. But you can sit down with someone with a Zoom recorder mm-hmm. and talk to them for mm-hmm. an hour or whatever about the past. It's amazing the way you can just get those stories now. Like a historian in 1890 or 1900 didn't have the ability to sit down with someone no. and record them talking. So the ability to get the stories now is a lot easier uh, than it was before. And, and the, the internet for, for history has yeah. been an absolute godsend in that sense. That's what exactly what I was just about to say is like, you know, the platform's always been there, but the information mightn't have been, you know, put yeah. on like Come Here To Me or like this podcast now with Three Castles Boring. You know, there's probably not enough people out there pushing it as much as you and yourself and, and that community you're in. There needs yeah. to be probably a little bit more, you know? Well, I mean, the, the big thing is to change the way historians think. So always when people were, what is history? Which is a great question. What is history? A lot of people would say, oh, it's, it's like the state. You know, it's politics. It's the top of the table. And if they wanted to tell the story of Ireland, they would look at government papers. They'd look at, you know, the state. But for me, I think you can only tell the story if you look at, Ordinary people, everyday people. So ordinary people, my father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, their reminiscences aren't in the National Archives. So how do you get them? You have to go and talk to people. Mm-hmm. So for me, there's been a real shift in this country, I would say, in the last 20, 30 years, where people think about the history of ordinary people as being important. So that's changed the game. And I, I like to call that social history, or you know, it's the history of everyday people. And increasingly, that is what's coming to the fore. And that can only be a good thing. It's stripping out the politics from it. It's stripping out that kind of stigma around, oh, it's the proclamation and it's what happened here and there with, you know, all these political figures. But it's yeah. actually not. It's the people that were on the ground experiencing these changes. Well, That's if if you take 1916 as an example, like mm-hmm. you, you, you've mentioned 1916 a few times. Like I've been looking at, you know, the looters in Dublin in 1916. Mm-hmm. Pierce is proclaiming a republic and the steps of the GPO. And across the street, people are like emptying clearies mm-hmm. and like Noblet Sweet Shop and Lawrence's Toy Shop. That's a part of the story in itself. <laughs> Why did people respond to the proclamation of a republic by looting the shops on O'Connell Street? Because they didn't have shoes on their feet because they lived in the worst tenements in Europe. So I don't think you can tell the story of 1916 without looking at that side of the story, mm-hmm. you know, how people responded in, in, in reality. And I mean, in my own family's case, I'd love to lie and say my great-granddad was in the GPO 
fighting for an Irish Republic. He wasn't. He was at the Battle of the Somme in a British Army uniform. You know, the life of people in Dublin a century ago meant you were far more likely to be fighting in the First World War than you are in the Easter Rising. That was just the conditions of life. So, like, trying to put ordinary people back into the picture, I don't think you can tell the story of the Rising without looking at how ordinary people experienced life at the time. So every event in Irish history, that's true of. You know, we know the big names. We know Pierce. We know Connolly. Uh, but what about Joe Bloggs? Or who is Joe Bloggs? And putting them back into the picture. I think that's the job of, of social historians. I think that's that's a really good way of putting it. But I would love to know now and let people listening or tuning in understand why you even got into this in the first place. Because, you, you know, as you said, you haven't got a family member that's, you know, yeah. been involved. Or, or you, I don't know if you were reared on history in, well, in the household but like I think it's true of everyone no matter what they do that they're, they're, you're, you're shaped by your parents whether you like it or not whether you like it or not and we spend the first kind of 20 years of our lives denying that and the next 20 years accepting it but we are all shaped by our, our mothers and fathers and the environment we grow up in my dad was in the fire brigade and he had a real sense of the history of the fire brigade and he ended up kind of writing the history of, of the DFB while he was still a firefighter but he would have like been in work with men who would have worked at say the Stardust Fire which was an awful night for Dublin. Men who would have worked at the Dublin Monaghan Bombs uh, in 1974. Lads would have been there through some of the worst days of the Troubles. And uh, when you grow up, in, when, or when you're working in an environment like, like he did, and you learn those stories, you become very conscious of history and what it means. So at home, you know, knowing what Dad was doing for a living and the interest he had in the history of his own job, I think that gave me a sense of the past as being a, an, an, an important thing. And we would have grown up in a household where there was an awareness of, of the past, you know, and the way it, it kind of lingers over things. So I think that the, the passion my dad had for the history of, of his own job, the fire brigade and the men who'd gone before him, uh, I kind of got that bug, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, from him. So, yeah, the, the historical consciousness. Uh, the influence was there, yeah. The influence. So, yeah, if you grow up in a household where people are always talking about the past, mm-hmm. you know, it's there. But I, I don't like the idea that history is history and it doesn't impact us today. I think it impacts everything we do, absolutely everything we do. And, uh, yeah, for me, that there's a there's a, a great crossover, you know, between history and, and the contemporary. I'd I love, love to know, like, when you were in, in school, we say secondary school and you were being taught history and so people will find this mad to hear but I mean I, I actually found history in school very boring I didn't I didn't sit there in class and go I'm going to be a historian because to me it was just a load of dates and men and this like idea of history being driven by great men so in Britain it's like Winston Churchill won the second world war on his own in Ireland it's Michael Collins won the war of independence on his own and none of that's true none of that's true you know the way we were taught history uh, in school, I thought was was very one-dimensional. And ordinary people didn't really feature in the story uh, at all. So for me, it just felt like learning off a load of dates. Mm-hmm. You know, this battle happened on this date, and then this battle happened on, on that date. And the approach I take to history is totally different from the way it was taught in school. And that's no dig at my history teacher, who had a real passion uh, for the subject. But the first time I remember thinking, God, I really like this as a subject, was when you do the leave insert, you do a special specialist subject. So every history student picks one thing they care about, and they go off and they write an extended essay on it. And that lets you get into the nitty-gritty of what you actually care about. But in general, I just think this obsession with political and kind of military uh, history, for me, it was, it was actually quite dull. And then when I went to college and I started learning about social history, the history of everyday life, I mean, I remember having a lecture in Minute on the bicycle. Like, what a, an amazing thing, the bicycle. And in the early 20th century, the bike allowed people, you know, working-class people, to travel. 
You know, it got women out of the home. In the Irish Revolution, the bike was how revolutionaries got from one town to the next, mm-hmm. spread the message around the country. And I remember thinking, wow, you know, you couldn't tell the story of modern Ireland without talking about an everyday object like the bicycle. So social history made a lot more sense to me then. But uh, in school, that's what we're missing. And what we should do is link up schools, say with a local old folks home. Wouldn't that be a great idea? Mm-hmm. If you've got a secondary school in, you know, in, say, Coolock where the old Capri's factory used to be, why not send those kids to interview old heirs who used to work in the factory and get like get kids thinking about the history that's contained within older human beings? You know, for me, that's, that's really important. It's actually important. something, it's really funny you say that. And, and um, a couple of months ago, I had this plan to do a series part of this and I was going to call it In the Rare Owl Times. Yeah, great. And what I was going to do was, and you might be able to help me with this, you could probably come along and help. It was to document um, visually, sit down with these people and video it and hear their stories and then be able to use that to kind of really a, a personal pro- project to be able to show my kids or my yeah. grandkids like this is what your granny was like and this is how she worked and lived and shared a room with eight people do you know that if way, i had like, a tenor for every time a friend of mine's grandfather died or grandmother died and they said oh i wish i sat down and interviewed them mm. i'd be sitting in las vegas at the minute you know mm-hmm. like people don't do that mm-hmm. and we should it's look what we have here the equipment we have here will be perfect for doing mm-hmm. something like that we could work on that so together, i yeah. really wish Definitely. at a secondary school level mm-hmm. that we started doing that mm-hmm. that uh, part of the curriculum was to get kids talking to to older people let and them be them aware of the yeah. surroundings that that have well, built them to get to where they are now and i think just just a matter of interest when i think kind of like of the most kind of um famous and most uh you know well-known things that have happened in Irish history to, to shape it to become mm. the place it is now. What kind of stands out to you most? And what's one of your kind of favourite stories that kind of you always um, think back on and think like, you know, that's one that really catches my eye or catches my attention? I think one thing I never really understood as a, a young person who was writing history, say I'm writing history about 10 years now, I never had a sense of Ireland as a global community. And it's only in the last couple of years that I've been lucky enough, as you kind of make a name for yourself, you get, you get invitations to speak in other places. And for me, it's been amazing to see the, the Irish diaspora in all its glory. I mean, there are 35 million people in the United States of America who claim Irish lineage. To me, that's just extraordinary. And you see them at weird times. You're like, well, like when McGregor's in Las Vegas, and you're like, where did all these people come from? Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't all fly over. It's the Irish diaspora. Mm-hmm. Or if you look at like Manchester, St. Patrick's a, Day in Boston, yeah, like you there know. was a time when one in twelve people living in Manchester and one in ten in Liverpool were born on the island of Ireland, which is amazing. And then in Canada, Australia, Argentina, and I, I find that really amazing. And that's something I'm always trying to learn more about. You know, I, I think the the idea that this tiny little island could have such an impact on the world mm-hmm. and that so many people across the world could feel a connection to this place. I find that really, really incredible. And that's been something I've, I've kind of been, that's the rabbit hole that I've gone down in recent times is, is the Irish diaspora. But in terms of like in, inspiring stories in, in Irish history, I think the Irish Revolution is, a, is an incredible tale. Like when you look at Ireland in the early 20th century, that the, the, the British Empire, the crack in the British Empire, in many ways, the vase of the empire, which many people thought would never come apart, the crack was arguably Ireland. Yeah, so just, when we think kind of, Donald, when history in, in Ireland and in Dublin and all across the world, really, but does Ireland, you know, as a country, do we value the history as much as we should? Like, without getting into, like, a very deep philosophical discussion, like, when we, like, what is... In many ways, many different people on the island of Ireland have their own interpretations of the past. And me and you, the version of history that we would have is very different from a unionist sitting on on, on the Shankill Road. But I think on the island of Ireland, 
various people, no matter how they interpret the past, and we'll fight about the past all day, but one thing we all agree on is that the past is important. And I think we have a much greater sense uh, of history than they have on our neighbouring island, for example. It's amazing to me that during the entire shitstorm that was Brexit, the complexity of Irish history, the Irish border, all of that didn't really feature. Whereas in Ireland, I think we're always much more conscious uh, of the past and we have an understanding of what we've come through as a people, even if we disagree on the, the nitty-gritty of it. So I think to a greater extent than probably any other country on earth, we do have an understanding of history as an important thing. Are we trapped by it? James Joyce had that great line, history is a nightmare from which I'm trying to awake. You know, The Irish people mm-hmm. maybe spend a little bit more time in the past than we do uh, in the present. But now we are always conscious, I think, of, of, of what came before us, even if we don't agree necessarily on it and, and the path to here. It's basically shaped us to get to where we are uh, now. And yeah, I mean, w- whether we like it or not. But so much so, to even with your point earlier on, saying that whether we like it or not, our parents are the main influences to get Absolutely. us to where we are now and how we, uh, how we carry on in life. But when I think kind of with, with the history of it, their parents as well, like my family's family were from flats in Dublin. So they're hardworking um, people that would have struggled but got by and got to where they are and, you know, grateful to get to where they are. But then when you think of me growing up then, I kind of understood then that, like, you know, you don't get yeah. nice things every day But of those the people year remain fundamentally shaped exactly, by that. Exactly. So my, my mother and father were raised in Ballyfermot which was known jokingly as Ballyfar out because people from the inner city felt like that was the moon, like they were just being transported <laughs> to the middle of nowhere. <laughs> but like they would have come from inner city families, in my yeah. mother's case anyway. And they always felt that sense of identity and she was raised with that sense of identity. So yeah, I mean, the, the way the past shapes how we see ourselves uh, is, is very, very real. Mm-hmm. And I, I, do, I, I was absolutely amazed actually by how little historical cop on, if you want to say it, there was in, in Britain during kind of recent uh, developments there it's amazing to me i think a lot of it's media as well it's all kind of w- with the way politics are going now it's not really when we look back at it we're going to look back and say oh remember your man donald trump and we look well, back and say remember your man boris johnson it's not really like <laughs> it's more kind of like it's like a reality tv show we're living in now it's or such a strange you know? time in in uh in the world you know and I, I, I do i don't envy the historians in 50 years time i have to make sense of, the madness <laughs> yeah. of what we're all living through uh, at the I minute, that yeah, that's, that's, yeah. That's basically <laughs> what I meant to say. And I, I also don't know how they're going to do it, by the way, because like if I want to write something on like the 1930s or whatever, well, oral history is kind of hard because people like people sadly die. You know, everyone dies in the end, but you can interview the children of people maybe. Mm-hmm. But you can walk into the National Archives and look at the government papers. How are we going to look at like the emails of Donald Trump or mm-hmm. Boris Johnson? It's going to be mm-hmm. a lot harder to write history in the future because of new technology. If we don't have the written archives. Uh, or we won't have the written archives that we have looking back. So mm-hmm. the way people write history uh, is definitely going to change. And in isn't 50 it years, it'll be all that, like, fake Twitter, news. Twitter will be appearing in footnotes and history books in like 40, mm-hmm. 50 years' time. I absolutely. find that We, we don't think mad. of that, and you're, you're actually spot on, because these are things we're not thinking of now. But, I mean, when you say the word Twitter or you say the word iPhone or podcast 50 years ago, they say, what's that? Some story, I mean, know? a friend of mine says, oh, forget Twitter, you know, no one remembers Bebo. I'm like, yeah, but like no one ever, re- no one ever resigned on Bebo. You know, like Twitter <laughs> is more historically important whether yeah. you like it or not. And the way we write history is going to have to change mm-hmm. to take into account all these kind of new uh, new means of communication in, mm-hmm. in recent times. But, you know, that's not my problem because I mostly write about 20th century pre-Twitter uh, Irish history. And, and that's kind of your niche and you... you um 
got into this for that. Yeah, history, that you know? that's the yeah, area that that, exactly. that I find really interesting. Mm-hmm. I I find it hard to relate to like 17th century history mm-hmm. or or 18th century history. I like history that you can kind of still see. It's still relevant. It's isn't still it? it still lives mm-hmm. in people. There's it still, still a lives. memory exactly. of like tenement Dublin if you want to find it. You know, if you walk into a housing estate two minutes from here in Drimna, someone will have a family connection to Tenement Dublin. You know, it still lives in people. Mm-hmm. It lives in the songs that have been passed down, the stories that have been passed down. I find it a lot harder to make. I can't really connect with, like, Viking Dublin. You know, to me, it just seems so long ago. But the living history of, say, the late 19th, 20th century is what really interests me because I think it's in people, whether they Talking like it Talking about the, you know, the Viking kind of uh, end of things and Dublin and that, I work in St. James's Hospital and, Recently, when the children's hospital site was being excavated, they start finding tunnels everywhere and they start finding 100 feet deep all these underground buildings. And then the city council come in and cordon off this section because, oh, hang on a second, we have to examine it and we have to come in and see Is it. Is that why it's taken so long? Probably. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't it's know. It's the longest running hospital development in the, <laughs> the world. The most expensive. The most expensive and mm. haven't put a bed into the place. I yet, know. You know, I know. The first window went in last week. But, <laughs> but what I was trying to say was... I found out then through this that there was a tunnel that still is there. Um, we have two tunnels in the hospital. One is the energy centre that runs from one end to the other, but the other one is the tunnel that was for the rebels. So basically, the kitchens on James's hospital site, food was exported into the GPO, supposedly. Now, I don't know how true this is, but people are saying that the rebels travelled through these tunnels under the, I don't know how it happened, but them tunnels were put there by the Vikings is what people are saying. I've never heard that, but that's extraordinary. And that's the that's city what, below yeah, that's what the I city heard. if you yeah, go digging, honestly. you know. How but, uh, true it is, I don't yeah, know. And I mean, I, I can't reference it anywhere, or, or <laughs> but, but I've heard it. And it's the word going around the hospital now that them tunnels were put there But you know, it'd be great that. to record how that story grows legs as it makes its way through <laughs> various, uh, the various staff sections of the hospital. The story will grow. It could, grow be, just, grow. It could be just one of those uh, legends just to kind of, I don't, I don't know. No, but but definitely, um, I'm glad that you spoke a bit more, a little bit about the future there. And I kind of yeah, like well, to. I mean, at the moment, we're living in a historic time, and we're living in what it was. What was it described as in, in the New York Times last week? The most expensive city in the world uh, to move to. I think this is a, a moment of great change mm-hmm. uh, in Dublin. People can't afford to live here mm-hmm. anymore. The rent is just sky high. So many young yeah. creatives are are leaving the city and places that you know when I, I've done a lot of interviews with people at the 1970s and they talk about Stony Batter as a place they're terrified I was of. just going to say the, Stony the, the dogs walk mm. around in pairs and Stony Batter all this kind of stuff and now it's a centre of gentrification it's high up so, on the list of the best places to live in the world yeah it's like apparently it's the Williamsburg of Dublin whatever that means so, uh, so the city keeps changing and evolving you know and I find that amazing and it's in its own way and that's something that has to be that has to be documented too and what are your thoughts for the future of Dublin do you see it I'd like to kind of know more so do you see it with more of the Bernard Shaw more of District 8 being stripped away and made more commercial or do you see it um, almost like when the recession came and creativity was then um Set, set a light to it. It, it, it was it was found again because it's people had mad, to yeah like when the, when the arse fell out of everything global yeah. and it was a global recession I think people forget that like mm-hmm. the 2008 the global economy we all struggled, collapsed yeah. it was particularly bad in Ireland and like the, the IMF the International Monetary Fund were brought into this country and they don't generally walk around like western democracy so something's gone really wrong when the IMF are here we experienced a, a really massive crash but it was also a it was a time when a lot was happening I remember like you had cultural spaces opening up in kind of old warehouses. Um, even going back to music, I mean, it was a time when there was a lot of kind of rave culture that was emerging as well. I felt like it was at a kind of exciting time, 2008, in Dublin, and there was this kind of great cultural uh, moment. But I think whenever the economy is booming, the people that are squeezed, the people that suffer are the creatives, and that's definitely what's been happening in the city 
in recent times. I think like the city council, to their credit, often they get it right. And when they get it right, no one says they got it right. When they get it wrong, everyone says they got it wrong. But sometimes they get it right. And I think we have to fight for culture in Dublin. We have to make the argument that we need cultural spaces. But it's one of the few things that does better in moments of economic crisis. You know, in the 70s, Dublin was broke and Temple Bar was booming as this kind of countercultural. Mm-hmm. That's like younger listeners would be like, Temple Bar, that's a horrible kip of, full of tourist traps. But in the 70s, when we were broke, Temple Bar was full of really exciting theatres, galleries. Like when we're broke, we tend to do better with culture than when we're doing well. I think when we have money in our pockets, we brush the cultural sphere uh, aside and that's, that's wrong. So for me, we really have to fight for cultural space uh, at the minute uh, in Dublin. And it, it does make me sad and it makes me a bit angry to see the likes of what happened to both District 8 uh, and the Bernard Shaw happening. If you were to write a history of youth culture in Dublin at the moment, uh, if you were to interview people in 20 years that were there now, it's going to be a pretty grim history mm-hmm. in its own way. I mean, they really struggled against, the, the economists call it the Celtic Phoenix. I don't like that term. You know, Celtic Tiger's dead. Now we're living in the Celtic Phoenix, reborn. But it'll be a fascinating story for someone, someone to write, what it was like trying to exist and be young in Dublin at the moment. So for one thing to take a hit or to, to be at a deficit, then another thing then does well. And that other thing yeah. is culture then yeah. starts booming. Yeah, culture has to, you have to fight for culture, you know, every, every But that, if fighting for culture, when, when there's a reason to fight for it, and at the moment it seems to be kind of people are out fighting and people are out marching and there's all sorts of social media pages and platforms trying to fight for it, but it's know, not, no one's listening. People are like trying to shape the city at the minute. Exactly, is, yeah. It's a, is a really good thing because we all live here. And we all have to get the city that we that we want. Everyone cares. But it's it's really noticeable to me. You know, I'm I'm 30 now, and a lot of my friends that I went to school with, they now live in like Drogheda, or they live in like you know Mead, or like rural Kildare. Like people can't afford to live here anymore, and they're moving out and out and out and out. So like the battle for the heart and soul of Dublin is a real one that's being fought at the minute. You know, a city that's affordable, where the arts can exist. Is that too much to ask? I don't know, maybe maybe at the moment, unfortunately, it is. But they're the battle lines that are drawn at present. Like, back to Paul. Paul's gotten many shout-outs in this episode, but Paul has a very similar viewpoint to all this to you. You know, he, he also sees things the way you've just said. Back in the day, they if you were from the city or if you were from inner city, you were seen as affluent or you were seen as, you know, maybe people look down on you, you know, working class. And then that kind of got pushed out to the likes of these you know, suburb areas. Mm. And now everyone wants to get back into the city. Yeah. And yeah. now that's why it's 1,500 euro a month to rent a studio in, in, uh, on Dame Street. It's crazy, Whereas isn't it? It's it, the they pushed us people, out and now like we want to get yeah, back it's, in. It's mad. It's mad. Pushed it? us and out so so far that almost you have to travel to see friends for two hours. Yeah, it's, it's mad. It's mad. And mm. it's like suburbia in, in, in the 1930s. Like when they built Crumlin and Kimmage right beside where we are, Brendan Behan had a great joke. He said, there's no such thing as suburbia only Siberia you know like working class <laughs> people felt like they were being like moved beyond the moon mm-hmm. and now those areas are becoming gentrified and Dubliners can't afford to live in Crumlin or mm-hmm. Kimmage mm-hmm. and have been pushed out further and further and further the whole time so mm-hmm. it's sad in, in one way I mean two working people a, a working couple working class people on the average industrial wage it'd be very difficult for them to get a mortgage in, in Dublin today and I wonder what we're losing there you know what we're pushing away like I know a lot of really talented young people artists musicians they're all living in Drogheda now 
And apparently there's like a booming art scene in, in Drogheda because that is where Dubliners who can't afford to live in Dublin anymore going to go. There, yeah. And that's now basically a, a Dublin suburb. That's no insult to people of Drogheda. I know Drogheda has its own great history and its own great culture. But among young people, it's now like a Dublin suburb. What will happen? They'll be pushed so far down to Cork that it'll be, you know, yeah, we'll be all living me, on, on rafts out in the sea with, with our culture. The, the pushing people further and further from further, the city further, core yeah. is, is it's really tragic. And you end up with a city where, you know, only like Google workers... Uh, can afford to live. I mean, Google are now buying full apartment complexes mm-hmm. for their own workers. So I heard. They're jokingly known as like the Google ghettos, but that's like the idea that the city centre is for the tech workers and the rest of us just go on this like expanding journey outwards uh, from the city core. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's... Like the docks, you, there's no way of even denying it. Like the Docklands is Silicon Valley. Silicon docks apparently is what mm. it appears as on, on, on Google. And I've done a bit of work over the years with Dublin dock workers going down there and trying to record the stories of people who worked in that area. You know, guys from Rings End and mm. East Wall, and they just don't recognise it anymore. And I'm not arguing, oh, we need to preserve the past exactly as it was, because that's not healthy either. I don't think it's healthy to say this is history and we're going to keep it exactly as it was. Cities change, cities evolve, and things move on. But the historic core, I think, there's something that has to be kept. The heart and soul of a place can be kept, even as you modernise around it. And in the Docklands, they haven't really done that. I think they've just lost so much of the history of that that part of Dublin. And I worry about that happening in other parts of the city as well. Due to these massive companies coming in and taking over. And what's that pub on the corner there at, at Samuel Becker Bridge? I think it's uh, the Ferryman. The Ferryman, yeah. What, I heard a story about that now. And, um, you know, all these men would have got the boat over and done their work or whatever and then come back and went straight into that pub and unloaded their wages yeah on, it was on known alcohol. as the reed so right, okay. the uh the selector basically you'd show up on a monday if you wanted a day's work and you'd go to a thing called the reed and uh, a man would say you 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 you've all got a day's work and you got your day's work and uh, that's where he'd do it so you'd go and work for the day and then you'd make your way you'd make your way back but i mean that history is is it's fascinating isn't it mm-hmm. like who Absolutely. can imagine a, a working dock in Dublin today, when you walk down that area, there's no sense of it at all. It's it's amazing. And now they're putting in this thing. I don't know how certain it is. This this white uh, water rafting thing or something in the <laughs> centre. What's the that's story? A, that's a, that? that's a political scandal that I've that I have no particularly strong uh, views on. Is but yeah, happening? I mean the the air, it, w- it may happen. But I mean the that area of Dublin is changing very very rapidly. But you know, in some ways, there's, there's still a community down there. People forget there's still like ordinary Dublin people that live in that area. The mm-hmm. Luke Kelly monument down in Summer Hill vandalised. The, the big head I don't know if you've seen it oh no I haven't seen this but I remember walking down there one day and, and seeing that and there was like local people standing around to playing traditional music and these were all lads who lived in like Summer Hill and the immediate area and they said to me oh this thing's great because it's become a focal point for local musicians to gather and play music and I have to say like a lot of people you forget that there are ordinary Dublin people who live around the IFSC so, like, communities still exist in these rapidly East changing... Wall and... Yeah, in these rapidly Sheriff changing Street parts stuff, of yeah. Dublin. And it's great to see they... they. It's almost like this great form of resistance. You know, they, they mm-hmm. still exist as everything around them. It's like the house in that movie Up. You know that movie Up mm-hmm. with the little old man? I do indeed. And uh, his tiny little house yeah. surrounded by development. Mm-hmm. That, to me, is like inner city Dublin. That's a really good example it's of it, there. actually. Yeah. <laughs> but um, when I think kind of um, with the... Finally, with, with you saying, you know, that it's it's still there and it definitely is still there, but like the traders and the flower sellers and, you yeah. know, that recent scandal where they were trying to remove this woman, but this woman went on social media through Love in Dublin or whoever it was. Great, yeah. She, like, I think I actually follow a guy, Aidan Kelly, he's an artist, and um, 
he put up a picture and he was saying that if there's a a woman that describes Dublin, it's this woman. I yeah, think Aiden's it, a great photographer. A photographer, and exactly. I see a lot yeah. of his photos and uh, people like him are great because they capture the city at a moment in time, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have a lot of people doing stuff like Aiden at the minute. There's some great Instagram pages mm-hmm. that are you know, Dublin in black and white and stuff and they yeah, capture the yeah, city. Yeah, I love that page. And they're going to be very, very important resources like Aiden's photography mm-hmm. uh, in the years ahead. But that was a great story. The the way those women, like Tony Gregory, the late and great TD, went to jail for street traders and their right to trade in the streets on the north side in the 80s. Like Those people are the last uh, bastion, if you will, of, a, of an old Dublin... But what were your uh, thoughts on Moore Street then? Tradition. I mean, I, I again, Moore Street's this great ideological row because the street is, in some ways, in decline. You can't walk down Moore Street and not notice that the street is in quite serious decline. Why is that, though? You know, I think there's been a purposeful... Uh, attempt to let that street fall into decay because then you can say oh look at it it's a kip so we better knock it down and build a shopping centre ah yes but you know the way I look at it is you you can preserve you can uh, improve which is important things have to change sometimes Uh, preserve and improve that street I'd like to see it keep its historic character and I admit that there are things on the street that probably do have to change but uh, I'd like to see the core of it I mean that is the market street of Dublin for me I think the Molly Malone statue is on the wrong side of Dublin and on the wrong street entirely. She should be on Moore Street. That's where the female traders in Dublin uh, are today. That's a really good point. Yeah, I mean, that, that is where, if you want the, the spirit of Molly Malone in Dublin today, it's, it's on Moore Street. For me, keeping the, the market dimension of that street going forward is, is really, really uh, important. And the laneways of Moore Street are the last battlefield, if you will, of the 1916 Rising. The idea of that being demolished, demolished for a shopping centre, to me, is Crazy. absolutely absolutely mad and then finally I just want to ask you then with, with the recent change in talking about streets and trying to keep them Grafton Quarter where did that actually come from I don't know <laughs> I don't know anything about it so I'd love to know well I mean cities that have quarters I, I noticed that they never have four of them you know they always have like 20 quarters and you can't have 20 quarters mm-hmm. so uh, I mean, wh- wh- I've heard that the, the creative quarter have you heard that one no like St William Street and the area around that is apparently the creative quarter no one says that the Grafton Quarter won't stick I mean we like streets we like yeah, there's a great old book about Dublin, Eamon McAmosh's book, Down Dublin Streets. We love the idea of the street and the history of the street. We'll never adopt to this kind of American idea uh, of quarters. But They try it with Christmas whoever, lights. Whoever put up those Christmas lights. That's the last year, hopefully. Dublin Town or whatever, <laughs> I think, yeah. They, we won't see them Somebody next year. Somebody photoshopped someone, the one on Henry Street. Someone's fighting for their job at the moment. Someone's fighting for their job, yeah. But there's <laughs> one on Henry Street and someone actually photoshopped it. I don't know if you've seen it. Dean Scurry shared it. It was a uh, homeless quarter. Brilliant. And it was brilliant. brilliant. And brilliant. I loved brilliant. it. And uh, it was so relevant. You know, Paddy Cavanagh's great poem, yeah. you, Raglan Road, if you were to change the words on Grafton Quarter in November, which <laughs> like, it doesn't have the same ring to no, it. Definitely it, not. it will always be yeah. uh, Grafton Street. I um, just finally, um, I don't want to take any more of your time. I want to just shout out once again Tree Castles Morning. We're on the second episode. Um, there'll be many more episodes coming. Can you speak a little bit more about that and how yeah. frequent there's going to be episodes? So, I mean, come here to me, the blog is 10 years old. And uh, I, I've just noticed, and I think this is true of all blogs, that readerships are kind of declining in, in recent years on blogs. The format that people like now uh, is audio. And it is great to read, but it's also great to listen, you know. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've just picked up on this as something that people mm-hmm. are really into. And the thing you can do with a podcast that you can't do really with a blog post, unless you're really good with technology, which we're not, is embed the voices of others. Mm-hmm. So it's been really interesting for me to be able to say, as a historian, this is how I think it was, and now I'm going to cut to someone else, and they're going to, give their take mm-hmm. so the recent one we did on Grogan's there's, there's four different voices beyond my own in that podcast and it's great to be able to go out in the streets with a, a Zoom recorder and, uh, and get those stories from people so I found it really entertaining uh, and if you enjoy what you do and you clearly love what you do here 
it's not working really you know mm -hmm. it's 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 great fun so going forward i mean we have episodes lined up on hefo's army in the 1970s like dublin was never a gaa town dublin was a soccer town that's how it was and then gaa blew up in the 1970s why was that interview people about that you know do episodes on things like the gay rights movement in the 1970s interview people about that traditional music in the 60s so it's a real chance to go out there and uh, and get other people's voices captured and i think it's magic that in 100 years what's going to happen to spotify and itunes who knows but maybe in 100 years someone could listen to those podcasts mm -hmm. and hear all those diverse voices captured forever i think that's really beautiful i think most importantly i learned so much from this episode here but there's so much more I'm yet to learn and through your podcast now it, it's a simple 40 minute you it's, know it's a great format isn't it it's amazing and people talking it's just a great format it really and is I, I got into it through a, a New York podcast called uh, Bowery Boys I listened to you and saying I've, I've that I've been yeah. in New York a little bit over the years not as much as I'd like but uh, every street in New York is just bustling with history mm -hmm. and they do this great social history but I'll just take a street or a quarter, whatever, as they call them in New York, <laughs> and they'll give you this great bottom-up history of it. And I went, wow, that can be done for Dublin. So that was the main influence for me in, in trying to, to move in that way. I thought they used audio uh, so well. And in terms of Irish podcasts, I mean, I listened to some. I love that podcast, What's the Story? Mm -hmm. uh, Graham, and, and, and it's kind of similar to this, where they, they just talk to people. And it's really enjoyable. You know, the Dublin commute is so long now mm -hmm. that you have your 50 minutes in the morning and just listening to people is really refreshing. It's and really informative um, information that, that actually it's dialogue that you can learn from. It's like an audio book in your case. In mine, it's someone's learning someone's story. But in your uh, podcast, what I found from listening to the first episode is I took something away from it. And, and yeah, I found well, that, you know, that's something. And everyone I'm thinks the ship has sailed, by the way. Everyone like originally said, don't do a podcast. That's kind of yesterday's thing. But I don't believe that. I think the, the numbers are, are... I think it's tomorrow's thing, to be honest. Convince me it may be tomorrow's thing. Yeah. That. And I think what I finally wanted to say, and I'm glad that you spoke about education and, and uh, you know, schools, your podcast and and this, you don't learn that in the, in the schools and they're not teaching that in, in a classroom. Um, it's not textbook. It's off the bat. It's raw. It's organic. It's from people's stories and, and it's what happened and it's how they lived to get to where they are. And... To me, I think that's some of the best knowledge you could ever learn. Yeah, and I think you aim high with them as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've, some of the people that are on your podcast are really inspiring people. And I hope, like, in the months ahead, I'd love to get, like, Damien Dempsey on and talk about, you know, the historic songs. Because he doesn't only sing his own songs, no. but the older Dublin songs that he mm -hmm. sings, why he sings them, mm -hmm. you know, what they mean to him. Like, I think you, you can have a great historical conversation with people mm -hmm. in a podcast that you can't necessarily do. No, uh, in a written blog. So there's a lot of potential with it uh, going forward. I hope you get to I've, I've Dempsey, a new no, respect for, for you people, you podcasters, because it does take it does take an awful lot. Thank you. And look at your setup here, like it's, it's yeah, but it, it's most importantly <laughs> it's good fun, like you said. And I think um, even with Damien Dempsey, just to finish on that, like last year I went to his gig. He does the Christmas gigs in in Vicar Street, and he played his last song. And then when everyone was ready to leave, you know, there's no one more tune. He finishes and that's it. But he brought out Finbar Fury and yeah, Anel de May. And acknowledgement of the past. Exactly. Acknowledgement of the past. He brought back people that were, you know, massive figures in what shaped him. John Sheehan from the Dubliners. Mm -hmm. The way Damo always kind of gets John Sheehan involved whenever he can. And the respect that he has for, mm -hmm. for tradition and history. For me, that's part of the Damien Dempsey story he doesn't act like he invented the wheel mm -hmm. the wheel was already rolling down the street when Damo took it over mm -hmm. and he's got a lot of respect for mm -hmm. you know Sheehan and people that are gone you know Kelly Drew people like that a funny actually story too also working in the hospital and um, my dad um 
who was a union man, was was uh, good friends with Eamon Campbell from the Dubliners. And one day, Eamon got admitted into one of the wards, and he was travelling in and out of the ward with a um, an oxygen tank. Essentially, f- he was being treated for uh, a lung condition, and he was going out to the to the bicycle uh, shed and having a cigarette, you know, with this oxygen thing, you know, and. One day, my dad says to me, can you pop in to aim? And he says, I'm down in, in Liberty Hall. Can you pop in and can you um, drop him in a pack of cakes and a paper? So I went in and I went to the reception. I said, where is he? And he said, he's in such a ward. So I went down and he didn't recognize me. So I don't know who you are. And I said, you know, I'm such a uh, such a man's son. And he went, oh, brilliant. Sit down, sit down. Sat down with him. And we went outside and I wheeled him out for a cigarette. The nurses were looking at me like, oh, you know, <laughs> let him go on. He, that's his thing. But we were outside and he was having a cigarette and I was chatting to him and I was saying like, what what are the kind of things you you know that stand out to you most you know and he said to me i tell you what he said throughout the years there was three things that we did you know me ronnie and the lads he said was smoke cigarettes drink guinness and just sing and play music and that was it you know we just came together people came together we just played music and we loved our old smoke and we loved our old point of guinness and and that was it and i looked at him and i said to myself like you know three things in his life like he's just happy I mean like there's no other yeah. crap around that or anything but like the last man standing of the Dubliners is John Sheehan who John didn't, Sheehan, who didn't yeah. drink through didn't most drink, of the madness know, so maybe he's, maybe he's an advertisement for a sober lifestyle yeah maybe well, that, that's a good that's a good yeah. point actually <laughs> yeah. I didn't think to have, that. <laughs> to have those people around us is yeah. incredible that we met those people yeah. like uh, I have a great anecdote about going to see the Pogues the Pogues used to do an annual Christmas gig in uh, the Point Depot and they're, they're pretty poor gigs by the end of it to be honest but uh, Ronnie Drew would get on stage and he'd sing The Wild Rover and oh I can't remember the other tune that he did with the, the Pogues he'd do two tunes with the Pogues and then he'd leave and we ran after him one year and a friend of mine said Ronnie, Ronnie can I have your autograph and Ronnie said give me, a, give me a tenner so my friend handed him a tenner and Ronnie signed the tenner and said never pay anyone for their autograph and gave it back to him that is absolutely brilliant but to have lived in the same time as people like like Drew and Campbell is great yeah you know, it those, is indeed and I'm just so grateful that I got to meet him like if my dad hadn't said to me can you pop into him on your lunch break you know I would have <laughs> never got that little chat with him and I know he, he'd said something that was quite funny when I think of it but like he was really just basically saying to me like all we did was just play music and yeah. have a good laugh and that was really and it. John Sheehan like in recent years thankfully documentary makers and other people have been sitting him down and getting the I'm stories so happy, yeah. and that's what's really it really goes back to what we're saying really we'll definitely important. speak about it again in the future um, you know I want to do a, a series called In the Rare Old Times. It's I'd great love idea. you to be a part it's of a great it. I'd love idea. you to be um, maybe somebody that could help me out um, in in getting these people and sitting down. And you know, who knows? We could probably do a project together in the future. But yeah. um, until you know, yeah. I mean, the Dublin, I mean, the, the Rare Old Times thing is so funny because people talk about it in a very romanticised way, mm-hmm. and then when you actually get down to talking to people about Dublin in the fifties, the sixties, mm-hmm. and the like, I mean, it was a hard time. Mm-hmm. But the sense of community is what comes through, and I think we've kind of lost that in a way. Uh, you know the, the 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 Dublin in the sixties and even into the seventies. It may have been a, a much poorer place than Dublin today, but in other ways it was richer. You know, people knew their neighbours. People had a sense of uh, identity. We've probably lost that along the way, and it's great to capture that uh, that old guard while they're still here, and and to talk to them. You know, it's fantastic. Right, Mr. Donald Fallon, thank you so much. Lovely, really appreciate. it. Coffee. Conversation.